Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Since we're, we've moved into that time frame where we get ready for Hanukkah, get ready for the time when we celebrate the coming of Messiah into our world, I thought I would shift gears from what we've been doing in the book of, Acts, uh, book of Hebrews for now and turn our attention to some of these passages that deal with the return of our Lord. I realize that this season we focus on the first coming when he came in his redemptive career and the prophecies that deal with that. But I thought I would turn our attention a little bit to the return of Messiah when he'll come in all of his glory. Um, Part of the reason for this is as we look at the events going on in our world, they are amazing, aren't they? I mean, who would think some of these things? And uh, they just seem to continually erupt in our televisions and on our screens and in our newspapers and on the internet. And they're just amazing to see these things happening at this time uh, when you and I are alive to observe it. And I thought back to those early days when I first came to faith back in 1971. And in the early 70s, there was a time of turmoil as well, but in my opinion, not to the degree to which we are seeing today. But nevertheless, at that time, the thing that was very captivating and enthralling was the promise and the hope that Messiah was going to come to establish his kingdom on earth. And I can remember all the times that we would be at this church in which I had come to faith at. And I used to be there almost every day. Almost every day. I was in high school, so after school, I walked over to the church, and there we were talking about the Word of God. There we were reading various different books together and, you know, sort of debating and discussing what we were reading, what we were learning. And high on our list at that time was a book by Hal Lindsey, the great, uh, the late great planet Earth. You know, as I look back on that book, and I haven't read it in a long time, and I don't even think I have a copy anymore on my shelf, but there were some rather wild ideas in that book about the return of the Lord, but he wrote with such conviction, and the scriptures he brought to our attention about Messiah's coming again was just gripping. And, you know, we used to go to service, and even if we weren't at service, we'd go over to the church, and we had this sort of expectation that he's coming right now, so let's talk about these things so that when he comes, he'll find us talking about him, you know? It was sort of like we really had this thought in our minds that he could come any minute, and therefore we had to be ready. 
And we had to be serving, and we had to be doing, and we had to be sharing. We just felt this sense of urgency. I don't say we have to be in the sense that, you know, we felt pressured to. It was a delight to do, but there was this sense of urgency that he is coming again. He's really coming. And at that time, too, as I remember, in our, in our church services, almost every message was about the return of the Lord, you know? And it was a very exciting, very exciting time. And I thought, you know, we, we, we've become a little bit more mature, and he didn't come as soon as we thought, you know? And then we realized the scripture speaks about proclaiming, studying, teaching the whole counsel of God. And so there are other things that we ought to also be aware of in addition to, not in exclusion to, but in addition to the promise of the return of the Lord. And then, of course, as we get older, you know, we begin to focus a great deal on our own challenges. You know, at that time, 17 or 18, I wasn't worried about, did I have a job? Could I pay my bills, you know? Uh, How was my health? Everything was fine. But as you get older, you know, you start realizing, I need to pay my bills. As you get older, you realize, I need to stay healthy. And so all these other kinds of concerns begin to crowd in. Valid concerns, but they crowd in. And so Yeshua reminds us, don't be anxious for anything, you know? Don't worry, I got it all under control. I know your needs even before you ask. And so if we really had a, uh, a great sense of that, that might call us back to that blessed hope, as Paul writes of it in the book of Titus, of the soon coming of our Lord. So I thought with all of that, when we see all these things going on around us and we get disturbed by them, perhaps even angry about them, it's time for us to sort of flip the page and remember he is our blessed hope and he's coming again soon. And the struggles we personally have and the trials we see going on in the world are really not things that are happening outside his control. He's in control of all of it. So therefore, we can step back and rejoice in his promise, I'm coming again. So think about me. Anticipate my coming. Be prepared and be waiting for me because I'm coming again. So I thought... Maybe in the course of the next few weeks as we lead up to the end of December and the celebration of the coming of Messiah into our world, we might focus on his promise to come again. And so one of my favorite passages about his return is found in Peter's second sermon. And it's found in the book of Acts chapter 3. And it's a great chapter because not only is it um, about his promised coming, but also we see his wonderful working when he first came. But if you would, turn with me to chapter 3, looking at verse 17. Let's begin there in any case. And it says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did all your rulers. Of course, he's focusing attention on the death of Messiah. And while we know that the Romans were instrumental in the death of Messiah, The Romans did not act in a vacuum. There was a conspiracy that erupted, and it involved one of Yeshua's own disciples. Think about that. One of Yeshua's own disciples, as well as the Jewish leadership that had 
provided a kangaroo court to find him guilty and then to turn him over to Pilate and to the Romans. So it's a complicated series of events, but Peter is speaking to his people. Look what he says, and now brothers. And he says, I know you acted in ignorance, as did all your rulers. I think that's interesting too. I know you acted, second person plural. He's talking to the people right in front of him. Now this, you have to give Peter credit, don't you? I mean, Peter's talking to some of the very people who lined the streets of Jerusalem in that day and said, crucify him, crucify him. Some of the people that he's talking to may have been those that were right at the foot of the cross saying that if God would deliver you, why doesn't he take you off the cross now? And began to say all kinds of sarcastic words and phrases to him. Some of those people he's talking to right before him. Now remember, this is the one who, like some others, had denied Yeshua as well. He knows what it is to act in ignorance. Three times to Yeshua's face, he said, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. And one time, it says, he said those words with cursings on his lips. Did you ever get so angry you could just curse? Well, Peter was getting so frustrated with the accusation that he knew him and he knew that he knew him that he finally lets out an expletive, I don't know the man. And at that very moment, it says that Yeshua's eyes caught the eyes of Peter and he ran out, shameful, scared, no doubt, and saddened by what he had just done. Now he's filled with the Spirit of God. And this is the second time. The first time he spoke, 3,000 came to faith. He's got to be encouraged to share the word with boldness, right? He saw what the Spirit of God had done before, and he just saw what Messiah had done miraculously just a few moments before he delivered this message. We'll come back to that in a moment. But right now he is speaking to you, to them, And he's saying, I know that you acted in ignorance. I've done similarly. It did not, does, that does not mean that they're not guilty for what they have done. It doesn't mean they're not responsible for what they have done. It only means that they acted without fully understanding all that was at stake. But that was true of Adam and Eve as well. They had no idea that what they were about to do by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had such ramifications for billions and billions of billions of people throughout all of history. They acted in the same way with ignorance, but not without excuse. And so Peter is holding them responsible, but he's putting it in perspective. You've got to admire him in doing that, can't you? And so he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So now he's saying, look, what Messiah was to do was fulfilled by means of the very actions that you guys had participated in by your rejection of him, by your turning him over to uh, the Roman authorities and the Roman rulers, all of those things was under the explicit control 
of the work of God in fulfilling what the prophets had said that Messiah was to suffer and die. Now notice what else he goes on to say. He then says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So this is really powerful too because he's not just making an accusation, he's also offering a provision for how they acted. He's telling them, this is how you acted, you have sinned, you sinned terribly, but listen, that doesn't mean there isn't hope. This reminds me so much of Yeshua on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Peter said the same thing. You don't know what you have done, but there's forgiveness to be found if you will receive it. And so how do you receive this forgiveness? He tells them. He says, first of all, repent and turn back. To repent means not just to be sorry for what one has done, but it means to agree with God that what one has done was a violation of what God would have one do. Repentance is not just about how you feel. It's about how you agree with how God perceives what it is that one has done. That's what repentance is. It's an acknowledgement that, yes, God was right about how I acted, and I agree with him that I have acted this way, which is contrary to the way he would want me to act. The other part of repentance is to turn, and that's what he tells him here. Repent and turn from your ways. Isn't that what he says? Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. So there's an agreement with God, but there's a willingness now to turn from it and to reject it. John, the immerser, says the same things when he says to the Jewish leadership that confronted him. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Show forth fruits befitting repentance. It's not enough just to feel sorry for things. There ought to be a change, a transformation, fruit that demonstrates genuine repentance. Peter says the same thing. Repent and turn from that way. Agree with God that the death of Messiah, though a fulfillment of prophecy, was something I ought not to have encouraged. Turn from it, which means now to acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord. And in doing so, and those things happen almost simultaneously, but in doing so, our culpability for whatever sins we have committed are blotted out, forgiven, and no longer held against us. That's what Peter is telling these individuals who are right there on the scene saying and agreeing with the authorities that this one ought to die. Now, if you and I had been there at that same time, some of us may have acted very similarly. Some of us may not have. We don't know how we would necessarily act until we're in that circumstance. But we've sinned in other ways. But nevertheless, I'm so impressed with the way Peter is speaking to this crowd of individuals, some of whom were right there on the scene when Yeshua had died. And now notice what he says that your sins may be blotted out and 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophecies long ago. Wow, what a full statement. He said, right now, repent. Your sins will be blotted out. And then he says that times of refreshing may come. When he speaks of the times of refreshing, he's talking about the Messianic age. He's not just talking about spiritual fulfillment that we might experience, spiritual refreshment that we might have from time to time as the Spirit of God ministers to us. He's talking about when the times of refreshment will come. The time when the Spirit of God has permeated all of Israel and there's no need for anyone to teach them because they'll all be teachers from the least of them to the greatest. A time when Israel will no longer be the tail of the nations, as the prophet says, but the head of the nations. A time when Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. That's what he's talking about, this time of refreshment, this time of spiritual reality, when everything is restored. And take note of that word, restoration, when all that is out of whack is put back in place. We're seeing the out of whackness of our universe today. But what Peter is saying is, the one who you have rejected is the one who died for our sin, and for now he is in heaven for a time. He's at the right hand of the Father, fulfilling his priestly ministry as our great high priest, always making intercession for us. But it's only for a time, because when the times are completed, he will bring in that time of refreshment and the restoration of all things. Now, if you take a look at chapter 1, when Yeshua began his ministry, if you look at the very beginning, the very first verses, very interesting connections that are made. Luke is the writer. We know this because of what he says in verse 1, which matches what is found in the first verses of the gospel or the good news account according to Luke. And here he writes... In the first book, the first book is the book of Luke, that we know as Luke. And in fact, most scholars understand that the earliest copies of Luke was not just Luke, but it was Luke and the book of Acts combined. It's one book. And so in its earliest manifestation, it was really the book of Luke-Acts. Today, they've been divided up because we have three more good news accounts, and they've been put together, and Luke's other book has been separated from the first book or the earlier part of the book that he wrote. Does that make sense? So the book of Luke really encompasses the good news account and the book of Acts, but they've been separated later because of additional accounts of the life of Messiah, and so those are put together, and then we find out how the life of Messiah continued to manifest itself after his resurrection. That's why the book of Acts is so critical. The book of Acts is not the acts of the apostles, although that's what you always see. It's the acts of Yeshua through the apostles after his resurrection. It's the continued ministry of Messiah, but now the ministry takes on a new flavor, a new method. It's not Yeshua doing these things, but it's Yeshua doing these things through his apostles. 
And so he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Yeshua began to do and to teach until the time he was taken up. That's what his first book focused on. But this book focuses on what he continued to do after he was taken up and ascended. And what he continued to do, he did through his apostles. Now, take a look at this. If you go further down, it says in verse 5, For Yochanan, John, immersed, baptized with water, but you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him. They asked Yeshua, who is present with them. He was with them for 40 days after his resurrection and ascension. Forty days he spends with his apostles, the eleven, before he ascends into heaven, also recorded here in chapter 1. And now in verse 6, they begin to talk with him. And they ask, Lord, will you at this time, here's the key word, restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice that, the, that Yeshua doesn't deny the reality of a restor, restored kingdom. He only says the time for that restoration is not now. Now, if you go back to chapter 3, it's very interesting that Peter writes that Yeshua must be in heaven. Heaven must receive him until the time for restoration of all things occurs. So Peter now, we know, is listening very carefully to what Yeshua had told him in chapter 1. He's one of the 11 who's with Messiah. He's one of the 11 who asked, will you at this time establish and restore Israel's kingdom? And he remembered what Yeshua told him. I will restore it, but it's not for you to know. So now he's telling those he's speaking to. The one that was crucified, the one who died, the one who rose again is the one who can blot out your sins. And you want him to do that because until he's blotted out your sins, he will not return so as to restore the kingdom to Israel. So notice Peter's very clear. He's not saying because when you, uh, when you repent, he'll establish the kingdom in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 100 years. He doesn't give us a time frame. Why? Because Yeshua had told him, it's not for you to know the times. It's only for you to be prepared for it when it is to occur. Now notice, he says to them that you are to repent and turn that times of refreshing may come and that he may send the Messiah who's appointed for you, whom heaven must have until that time of restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets that God spoke long ago. This reminds me of the book of Hebrews too, right? He said, God spoke by prophets long ago, but today he's speaking through Yeshua. That's what's happening here. He's drawing their attention back to what the prophets had said, but now he wants them to remember Messiah speaking even right now. In fact, he's speaking through me to you that you would repent. And know that when you repent, and only when you, now the shifting of the meaning is from those individuals he's speaking to, and by the way, some 6,000 will come to faith as you read of it in the next chapter. But he's also speaking to the nation as a whole as represented by the, uh, by the rulers. And Peter has it right again. And that is that when Israel repents, when Israel turns, then the kingdom shall be established. 
Yeshua said that earlier, didn't he? You shall no longer see me until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's always that way. First Israel and then the nations. When Messiah came, he comes first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he gives the marching orders, go into all the world among all the nations. Now that he's gone into all the world among the nations, the nations need to come to faith. And then attention will turn back to Israel. If you would, turn with me to the book of Romans. Paul makes this very point in chapter 15. He's taught very clearly about it in chapters 9, 10, and 11, particularly chapter 11. But in chapter 15, he makes it very clear that Israel needs to hear the good news first in order for the non-Jewish world to hear it. And once the non-Jewish world hears it and receives it, then attention is brought back to Israel for the time of refreshment and the restoration of the kingdom. And so if you look at chapter 15, as he concludes this letter to these believers in Rome, he says in verse 8, For I tell you that Messiah became a servant to the circumcision. He's talking about a servant to the Jews. Now what's interesting here is the Greek word for servant in Romans 15.8 is the very same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint when the book of Isaiah was translated into Greek 200 years before Jesus. And the word for servant in Isaiah 53 is the word that Paul is using here. So when he says he has become a servant to the circumcised, he means he's become that suffering servant for Israel to bring redemption to his people. And now notice what he says. For I tell you, Messiah became a servant, a suffering servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Notice this whole focus on fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling the prophet, uh, promises. But then look at his next phrase. And not only did he become a servant to the circumcised to show fulfillment of the prophecies, but also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. To the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Paul said that in Romans 1.16. He says it at the end of the chapter. The prophets say the same thing. The suffering Messiah comes first for Israel, and then he'll come to the Gentiles. And look at what he quotes. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, Paul says. He's quoting these passages to show the prophets showed Gentiles were also to come to know Messiah, but only after Israel first had opportunity. So he quotes, and we don't have to read it all, but he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, it's like the book of Hebrews, right? Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes from the book of Genesis. He quotes from the book of Psalms. Catch that. He quotes from all three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. And when a rabbi wanted to make his point absolutely bulletproof and one that you cannot argue against, you want to get your passages not just from the book of Psalms, 
not just from a prophet, not just from the law, but you want it from the law, the prophets, and the writings. What Paul is saying is, he's arguing like the rabbis would argue. Yeshua, the Messiah, was first to come to the Jewish people, and then after that to the Gentiles, and this is what Scripture teaches in the law, the prophets, and the Gentiles. There's no argument about it. This is what the Word of God is teaching. So that when Peter stands up in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, he's speaking to these Jew, this Jewish crowd. And he's telling them, the one that you were instrumental in seeing come to his death has done this for you. He has become the servant to the circumcised, in Paul's words, in Peter's words, that your sins might be blotted out. Paul says, and then to the Gentiles, and, P- and Peter's saying, and then he'd be received up into heaven for a time. Thereafter, at some time later, Messiah will come again. Now look at what Peter goes on to say. He says, heaven must receive for a time until the restoration of all things. And now look what Peter says. Moses said this. He said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And then all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And then he says to the crowd, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, this is for you, he's saying. You know, I could just see us down in Fairfax on one of the street corners saying, this is for you. You know, throughout history, the coming of Messiah has been seen as something that's for the Gentiles, and it is, but not in exclusion to the Jews. And so he's saying, this is for you. Don't miss out on it. Take advantage of what God has done for you. Because this is what Moses talked about. This is what all the prophets from Samuel to the present talked about. Look what else he goes on to say. He says, you are the sons of the prophets of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You and Gentiles, there it is again. He raised up his servant, there's the same word in Isaiah 53, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What an incredible message. The combination of the coming of Messiah, the appeal to give your life to Messiah, the promised hope he's coming again and will not come again until your sins are blotted out and then the restoration of all things will occur. So why is Peter so convinced of all of this? And the reason he's so convinced is because he just saw, not only did he spend three and a half years with him that he's reflected on, and has seen what he's done through him earlier in Acts chapter 2, but he just saw him a few, mo- a few moments before raise a man who is begging at the beautiful gate of the temple because he can't walk, right? That's how the chapter opens up. Check it out. And there is a lame man sitting at the beautiful gate, the entrance to the temple. There's difference of opinion as to which gate he was at. But nevertheless, he was there at an entranceway into the very temple, and he is begging. 
We don't know what he was begging with. Maybe he had a clay bowl or a jar. Maybe he's handing something out and he's asking for some alms. And when Peter and John come by and they see him and he sees them and they stop, his heart must have been just leap for joy. I'm going to get some money. And when he heard them say, silver and gold, we don't have any, he must have liked it. Oh, you know. And it's at that point, Peter says to him, check this out. Peter says to him, verse 4, Peter directed his gaze on him, as did John, and said, look at us. Isn't that kind of neat? So it gives me the impression that they gathered. Maybe he was embarrassed. He's begging. His eyes are cast down. And they say, no, lift up your head. Look at us. God is going to do something really great for you. And he says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have will give unto you in the name, by the authority, by the power of Yeshua, the Messiah, rise up and walk. You know, there was a story that I had uh, read various versions of, but there was the story that during the, I guess, Renaissance era or whatever, forget his exact dates, but when Thomas Aquinas was visiting with one of the cardinals in Rome and they were walking through the streets, that there was a beggar. And there was a fellow begging on the street and the cardinal reached into his you know, pocket or whatever and took out some coins. And then he said to Thomas Aquinas, you know... The church can no longer say, gold and silver have I none. And Aquinas responded, and the church can no longer say, rise up and walk. You know, something to think about. Because of much that we have, we don't see God working in ways that we would like to see him work. But in this instance... They say, we don't have gold or silver, but what we have will give unto you, rise up and walk. And it says, uh, and he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. They were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So are, are you ready to leap? For, isn't that kind of weird to think about? Just leaping for God, you know? You experience the grace of God in such a marvelous way. You don't care what people think. And think about this. When you learn to walk, did you just get up and walk? Right? What your mother or someone is holding your hands and you fall and you, but not this man. He never walked before. And so all of a sudden, he was able to get all the, everything working right. You know, like, as you know, Anthony's giving me lessons surfing. You would think that just stand on the board, go, you know? And, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, you got to kind of figure out how you get on the board. You got to stand the right way, feet apart, knees down, you know, uh, crouch a little bit. And you got to, and then you can't be afraid of the waves coming. You got all kinds of things going on. Forget about sharks, but we won't talk about that. You got all kinds of things that you're thinking about just in order to do this. Well, you know, it takes a lot to figure out how to walk, 
Have any of you ever lost the ability to walk? Maybe a broken leg and you just, you know, then after you got to kind of get ready again. Or even if, you know, your foot falls asleep and you try to walk and you can't feel it right and you got to kind of ease into it. This man, he's just boom and he's leaping and jumping and and people recognized him and saw what was going on. And Peter was one of the catalysts. And as the crowd is forming, he sees his opportunity to share. And so with the demonstration of God's power and with the explanation of what the prophets have said, you put it together and he's calling upon them to experience the life Messiah has because he's coming again to make that life permeate our entire world. We can experience it personally today. But the day will come. We don't know the day or the hour, but the day will come when all of the world will be impacted by Messiah's life. But now is the day of salvation. And it doesn't matter what we have done. We could have been one of those who stood at the foot of the cross and said, crucify him. And he's ready to forgive us of our sin. Peter's talking to those very people who were engaged in his rejection and his demise. And yet Peter is holding open to them forgiveness of all their sin, not just that sin. And so what Peter really is focusing our attention to is the Messiah of Israel. He calls him our father earlier in this passage. We didn't look at it. He calls him the holy one and the righteous one. These are all Hebraic expressions. They're found all throughout the scriptures. In fact, when he calls him the holy one, he's looking at Psalm 16. He would not allow his holy one to see corruption, a messianic prophecy. When he speaks of him as the righteous one, he comes right out of Isaiah 53. My righteous servant, he calls him, that gives his life a ransom for many. And thus he draws our attention to Yeshua, that we might experience the new life in him and the promised restoration that will come to the ends of the earth. So are we not craving for this restoration? Of course we are. Are we not craving for forgiveness? Of course we are. And the provision for it is right here. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the boldness of your servant, Peter. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of thought that he expresses because your spirit has taken hold of him. And he brings to light the coming of Messiah, the, f- the working of Messiah, the forgiveness that he can offer, and the life that comes as a result. Father, may we, like this lame man, experience your power this day. Your power to transform, your power to raise us up, your power to forgive us of our sin, and your power to heal us and to change us and to make us different and new. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us even now.
And we would pray, even so, come Lord Yeshua, when this will become a reality for all the ends of the earth. We read it earlier in Isaiah 35, that when the promised Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will rise up and walk. This man who walked was an indication of the saving grace and power of our Messiah and our Lord. Help us, Lord, to be drawn to him. Help us, Father, to rely upon him. Help us, Lord, and grant us the courage to come to him as we ought for all kinds of needs. But may we also come with all kinds of thanksgiving and appreciation and gratitude for what you have done and for who you are. Lord, we pray these things in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.